This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Melbourne now, back in the 19th century, where sex work was one of the major ways poor, unmarried mothers could earn an income large enough to support their families. In that era, in the gold rush era, prostitution wasn't illegal, and some of these women became very successful in business and property, and yet we barely know anything about them until now. Uh, Dr Sarah Hayes is at La Trobe Uni, where she is a research fellow in archaeology and history, and has contributed to the Conversation Sexual History series, and it's really great to have you here and who knew that yeah. sex work was just really important economically to certain women I suppose and I, um, perhaps you can tell us what archaeology can tell us about them. Yeah I guess the, um, the real strength of archaeology is that you get this kind of patchy bits and pieces of information that you wouldn't normally come across and so obviously with something like sex work what makes it into the historical records is police documentation or um, you know when they get in trouble if they get sent off to jail for something and so you get a very kind of one-sided I suppose picture of what sex work would have been like and it, it seems to get lumped in with criminals and slums and all this kind of thing in the historical sort of record um, but what we found when we started looking at the artefacts that came out of these um, sites in Little Lon is that it really tells more of a personal story of these women and you even actually start trying to track and find these women in newspapers and that kind of thing and that way they really come to light as individuals as women trying to do what they could and I think in that way it gives just it's like a different starting point. Yeah it's different and I mean <laughs> you said the words Little Lon there I mean the the, the the main archaeological sites that are showing up these artefacts are at the top of Little Lonsdale Street yeah. and at, at the time known as Little Lon. How did that become become the, um, the, the, I suppose, the epicentre of this kind of um, find? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that that area of Melbourne at that time was quite far from the port and so it would have been cheaper real estate. It wasn't sort of a, a particularly advantageous location for, um, for businesses and that kind of thing because at that time carting water and carting um, cargo from the port that was really kind of important stuff and so it became an area of low rents and small cottages and that kind of thing and there were also parts of it that were quite low-lying land and so it got quite swampy and sludgy and there were all sorts of problems with cesspits and sewer leakage and this kind of thing so it wasn't it was low rental area <laughs> yeah yeah and um i mean was it a coincidence that it was also near parliament and yes. those areas yeah, where yeah. a lot of men were working yeah, yeah. So just slightly up the hill away from the cess and the stink was the um, Treasury and Parliament. And so in terms of access to that sort of male enclave, I suppose, that was it was quite advantageously situated. So I think probably those two things came together to make it um, an area that had quite a large number of bottles in it. Mm. Yeah. And so at the time, sex work wasn't illegal, which I wasn't aware of before. Was there still a kind of a stigma associated with yeah. it or did that come later? Yeah, there was still a stigma. And you could be arrested for things like um, disorderly conduct or vagrancy. So you sort of... the 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 sex workers in this area, they had to behave in a certain way and so they couldn't get too kind of outlandish or carried away. <laughs> and certainly things that they wouldn't have been able to do out in the suburbs, like, um, you know, showing their ankles and things like this, it was um, that they could kind of get away within Little On and the police um, have said said something in a, in a superintendent's report about, well, they have to be somewhere. And so they kind of encouraged them to go to particular places, not just Little On, but... Um, yeah, and then that, that sort of 
it also perpetuates and it becomes kind of a, a mm. hub of, of sex workers, I suppose. So, yeah. so is that why it's been, I, I guess, difficult to, to know exactly what it was like back then until, you know, you've been excavating and, and finding these artefacts? Was it difficult to, to know what happened there because of that stigma associated with it? Yeah, so you get a very kind of one-sided view of it and so you get kind of police reports about, you know, <laughs> numbers and, and, um, and they were kind of grossly underestimated from um, Barbara Mitchenden who wrote the paper with me she's been looking at how um like the official police numbers but then she because she's been tracking um sex workers from the other end so looking looking through for particular names who rented particular properties and going from like the bottom up effectively she's finding um women who were definitely sort of pulled up for various things and who would have been working as sex workers at that time and the numbers were far more than the police ever felt that that you know reported mm. whether they knew or they didn't who knows but that certainly there were far more in the area than than the police were reporting mm. yeah so who do we know most about i, I think um madame brussels is one but who's who are the the kind of characters and and um significant figures that you have uncovered through your work yeah so madame brussels is is hugely famous we don't have any archaeology for her unfortunately we haven't had access to to her um rubbish pits and things but so another really interesting um lady that we've learnt a lot about about is Mrs. Alicia Bond. And uh, it's funny because I always, you know, it's Mrs. So you think she's a bit older, but she's actually about 34 when she arrived at Little Lawn. So um, she's, you know, quite a young woman and she had very young, three very young children. Um, she arrived in Little Lawn. Um, she immigrated from Ireland. So she came over from Ireland. Her husband had died. She'd kind of hooked up with another guy um, and started started working in Little Lawn. And she... Um, there's a fantastic report at a court trial where she says that um, she basically had to get into prostitution to to look after her three small children. And so, um, and she kind of worked her way up. And it's really interesting because <laughs> she worked her way up. She sort of rented properties and then eventually she bought a property and then she bought a couple more and then she bought a couple more. So she's kind of, in a way, built this kind of property portfolio on the, on the back of her work as a madam. And she sort of... She ends up... At, at, at when we first started working on it, we thought she'd turned respectable at some point. Oh, it looks like she's stopped and she's turned respectable. And she's... Because she starts, like, running a grocery shop with a Lonsdale Street frontage, which is a much more expensive property. And so we thought, oh, that's interesting. And then... But then we started looking at the archaeology, at the artefacts, and we were like, oh, no, that's not... There's so much evidence in the rubbish pits and things on her property that make it look like she definitely was running a brothel. <laughs> is that... That's, like, al- alcohol containers yeah. and, and that sort of thing? Some very specific things. I mean... Obviously, you get alcohol containers everywhere mm. in Melbourne. <laughs> some things never change. <laughs> um, but there were some very specific things, like there were 13 absinthe bottles, which is something we hadn't found anywhere, or not that I'm aware of, in, in Melbourne before, um, which was that hallucinogenic kind of <laughs> green fairy drink. And also lots of French champagne, some fancy spirits bottles, stuff that you just wouldn't find in a normal domestic property, or definitely not in those numbers. Mm. And the other interesting thing was... The, um, 300 oyster shells in this rubbish pit with the absinthe bottles. So that kind of really got us thinking about, you know, what what's going on here. And we compared the numbers with some other sort of more traditional um, domestic kind of um, assemblages. And, yeah, it's really different. <laughs> so that kind of clued us off that, no, it's not a grocery. <laughs> mm. So oysters were a popular 
thing at, at they brothels. They were, yeah. So, well, yeah, seemingly. <laughs> um, oysters were definitely available in Melbourne at the time. They weren't terribly expensive for quite a number of years until the numbers started to drop um, until it sort of got farmed out effectively. But at the start, it was quite a staple food even for working class people. But again, there's that difference between the domestic sites and this site. So you've got in the domestic sites, you might get 20, maybe 30. This one had 300. So, you know, what's <laughs> going on there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Dr. Sarah Hayes was with La Trobe Uni and we're talking about an article that she's co-written as part of the conversation sexual history series and having a look at sex work in 19th century Melbourne. And I suppose um, when you were looking at these sites, I mean, are we getting more evidence all the time? Because how does this turn up? How do they, yeah. how does the evidence turn up and end up in Museum Victoria or in Heritage vaults and yeah, so forth yeah so it's kind of a it's a bit of a um it's like a it's a bit of a lottery i suppose but it, it depends on what happens in terms of development so when a development takes place if there's a if there's a heritage listed area or block so there's like a whole you know heritage register of things that um get checked over by archaeologists before a development can happen so obviously when the old building comes down often the archaeologists will get an opportunity to go in and have a look and see what's there you know and, and then it's you might get nothing you might get something amazing um and so that's where we kind of get these opportunities to see what's under these hiding under these buildings and excavate them and and you know and then what happens is often those massive assemblages um there's not always enough money at the time of the excavation to deal with the assemblages themselves and it takes a lot of hours and a lot of time which of course equals money um to work through what's in all the boxes and often there's not enough time especially when you're talking about um old excavations, legacy excavations, one that were done, ones that were done quite a long time ago. So the first one at Little Lawn was in 1988 and there definitely wasn't much money for that one. They were, they really did well to kind of get in there and get to do it at that time because the legislation wasn't quite the same and it, and it wasn't as, um, people weren't as aware of the, you know, historical archaeology being a thing. So yeah, so in that, in that way we end up with all these boxes at Heritage Victoria and Museum Victoria that need a grant or something for someone to go and have a really nice close look at it and, mm. and get some different stories out of the stuff. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> as we've touched on and, and your article, co-authored article, article in the conversation outlines, um, this period in the 19th century where prostitution wasn't illegal gave women kind of independence and, mm. and allowed them to have a really important source of income which kind of changed when it was outlawed at the turn of the century. What do we know though about kind of the, the safety or, or the danger of this sort of work at that time? Yeah, it's certainly, yeah, it's certainly not like it was a, f you know, all, all sunny and roses type of thing. <laughs> There's certainly some, some bad stories out of it. But so you get these really contrasting stories. So we found one story where there was a um, Mary Murray was actually, she was, she was a bit of a, she liked to drink a bit too much and she, but ended up being really badly beaten by a client and one of her neighbours, one of the other sex workers in the area took her to hospital and, and but she didn't end up dying in hospital. So you certainly have those horrific kind of tales. Mm. But then on the other side, there's another lady who, you know, got sick and one of the madams paid her a salary for 18 months. So you have this real kind of, you know, horror stories and these kind of more community collegial kind of stories happening at the same time. And so it, it's a kind of complicated Mm. history yeah and I mean right in the outside in your article you speak about how people don't um, proudly claim that their great greats 
were engaged in, in sex work. And I suppose in a similar way that back in the day, people didn't proudly say that my great great was a convict yeah. or whatever it might be. Do you think this might change as we find out more about their lives that people might start to get interested in, in what their their great 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 grandmothers, yeah. um, how they got by? I think so. Look, I, I really do think that that will change. Because, you know, when you start looking at these individualised histories of these women, it's so clear that many of them end up there because, you know, they... Circumstances. Um, circumstances, yeah. yeah. And also because maybe they couldn't hold down some of the not fantastic jobs that they that were available to them. So it's both, you know, un, unmarried women getting pregnant and also women who just didn't really, you know, feel that the other types of work available to them were lucrative enough. So, again, it's a kind of a mix of things, but I do think that it is a bit like the convict thing. I think people will start to think differently about it. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, it sounds like it's ongoing as well, so I'd be interested to see what else you uncover. Yeah, You must get sick of that word in archaeology anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But you dig up. Yeah. Yeah, you've probably got a whole list. Um, Dr Sarah Hayes is with La Trobe Uni. She's a research fellow in archaeology and history and you can um, check out that whole series on the Conversations website and catch you again. Interesting, after leaving the international aid front line, he's returned to three countries where he worked extensively, South Sudan, East Timor and Iraq, uh, to not only witness what's happened there but to reflect on the success or otherwise of the international aid and rebuilding efforts that he was part of and he's written about this journey in a book. It's called No Dancing, No Dancing Inside the Global Humanitarian Crisis and it's really great, Dennis, to have you at Triple R. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming in. And I suppose we read so much from foreign correspondents in particular about their experiences after reflecting on conflict zones, not so much from those providing aid. And I wonder um, what motivated you to kind of go back and see what happened once you'd left. Well, it was a moment in my life. I was in Iraq finishing up after a number of years there and I was disillusioned. Uh, it wasn't a lack of money that didn't allow me to do what I wanted to do, but it was just the system. How we did what we did was the problem. And so I decided, well, I'll do two things. One of them was uh, a PhD, so I could research it a little bit more and understand a little bit more about it. And the other thing was to actually go back to these places to see what happened. So for me, it was about connecting with some of my old friends that I'd met along the way. It was also about closure to see, actually, did I contribute anything? What actually happened? And um, I didn't initially think I'll write a book, but as I was progressing through this and uh, had a few false starts and made my way uh, across those three countries that you mentioned, I decided, well, actually, this actually makes sense as a book because we need to be able to convey Uh, that perspective, the perspective of um, what's happened four, five, ten years after our aid money has been sent and spent. Mm. And I imagine for many who work in the aid sector, including yourself throughout your career, um, you might spend time in different countries depending on the nature of a particular humanitarian crisis and and the money that's available to assist in a given region. Is it very common, though, for for people, either individuals or organisations, to go back and do this kind of work you've done in this book? I haven't heard anyone who's done that Now, what usually happens is uh, straight after a project ends, there's an evaluation. It's usually funded by the donor. It's a dry report that says, you know, what happened, how effective it was. But really, if you look at the effect of aid, it can't be immediately after 
a project's finished, it has to be uh, taken in consideration of the years that follow and sometimes even decades. But we don't do that. That's not in the nature of our Western mindset. We're always so obsessed with just getting the numbers churned through and the dollars spent and the uh, reports written and then we move on. And um, so I think we need to do more of this. Mm. And those that kind of um, goal setting or, or um, the quantifiable nature, I guess, of the aid industry, as you've discussed in this book, seems to be part of the problem that that guides the nature of projects that are developed and, and um, yeah, that, that are put in place in certain uh, Absolutely. And it's, again, I refer to it as the Western mindset. We're so obsessed with measurable outcomes. It's, you know, what are the KPIs in your work or what outcomes will come out of the projects that we do and it's always measured around a political cycle so money is allocated based upon um, the income stream that you're getting it from and it has to be reported back to the donor but that's not how the real world works and so as you said um, you know in other countries there are aspects that are so important in people's lives that aren't measurable it's not just about how many kilometers of road have been built or schools have been built or things like you know things that we can give to people um, in, in, in Iraq, I mentioned this, that actually their faith is so important to them and, and you have to respect that faith and you have to engage in it and work with them to build a society that fits within their ideals of what they aspire to in East Timor straight after um, the conflict there. That although there was a lot of money and effort and attention given to the people, what they lacked was just being respected, listened and heard so they can map out their own future rather than be told by the UN or by the international community that you need these things to become um, developed. Yeah, it's interesting. And it, it, I mean, all the way through, I kept thinking about how accountable uh, not only UN agencies, but international NGOs are for their work. Well, uh, it, it again, it, I think it matters in how we define, you know, accountability. So uh, I think we're quite obsessed with every dollar being spent is accountable. But we, are we accountable actually to the promises we make to the people in the communities? Are we accountable to the aspirations that they have and the expectations they have of us? Not really. It really comes down to, have you got a receipt for this expenditure? And I mean, I suppose it's interesting, you know, when, when you journey back to East Timor um, in one part of, of um, the book, you write about, you know, checking out some of the, the fish farms that were established and maybe tell us about that because to me it really exemplified what you were trying to achieve which is we did this thing we thought it was really good um but what happened was it successful did it benefit people is it valued that sort of thing i mean what did you find mm -hmm. when you went there well it's great that you said we did think these things that we thought were really good and that's the sense i had so often when i was doing my work over the decade that i was involved uh, i really had this sense that well, i was doing something good and in many cases the um, good was being done, it just isn't necessarily measurable. Uh, and now in that case with the fish farms, it was a great grassroots project that came from the community. And um, we struggled logistically to make it happen because the fish farms are in mountains. You don't need fish farms when you live by the sea. You need them for those people up in the mountains. They, pro they provide um, you know, um, um, protein and, and other um, um, vitamins and etc. that are required for a healthy lifestyle. Now, what happened in that circumstance was that um, if you did the evaluation immediately after we'd finish it, you'd tick a box and say, 
brilliant. You know, the, the fish farms are dug, the fish were in. Um, usually what's done is there's like a bamboo structure over the fish farm where the chicken are. And so it's this uh, brilliant cycle of life where the chicken... Um, excrement then feeds the fish there's fresh water coming through and the uh and it's just a cycle of life that really works but then no one ever thought through well what happens when if a drought comes will it survive what happens if disease hit the fish will it survive are they prepared is the community prepared to see all of those hardships through and when i came um, in that instance it was about nine years after the fish farms we had built um it they had failed and one of the reasons was was because the type of fish that we had provided wasn't the type that we were familiar with. Now, no one seemed to think through whether they had the knowledge to be able to provide the care to this type of fish as opposed to another type of fish. It was, it was an obvious mistake, but it was a mistake we made. Um, but that never would have been picked up if it was just through the normal cycle of how the aid industry works. Mm, and, I mean, it's kind of complex in, in a lot of these places what happens after, you know, aid organisations leave or particular programs finish. And in one, uh, in the chapter on South Sudan, you kind of seem almost kind of personally frustrated at um, men in a particular area who aren't building latrines um, after, mm. you know, knowing that they were capable of doing so and saying, oh, you know, nobody builds these, we need these toilets. Um, and it, it kind of becomes apparent to you you that the reason people are kind of unwilling to do it is because they're scared of their land being taken from the state, which has been kind of supported through particular aid programs. So it's a complicated thing, isn't it, to get this right? Absolutely. Just to recap that story. So what it was, I, I came back to a what was then an internally displaced camp that um, had begun, begun in the late 1990s. And by the time I came back and visited, it had already been established for more than a decade. And I was really disappointed to see that all the wash points where we, we had built places where people could wash their clothes and had particular drainage so that it wouldn't um, stagnate, so it wouldn't facilitate the spread of diseases. Uh, we'd built, uh, help build latrines and a health clinic and all of this sort of thing that none of it was being maintained. And so I had this frank conversation with the village chiefs. We'd all sat around under a few trees and um, initially they didn't want to acknowledge what the issue was and they kept coming back with, well, what are you going to do and you know, how are you going to help us? But ultimately when I pushed and pushed, it came down to the fact that they weren't willing to invest in their land that they had occupied for over a decade because they were afraid that the government would then um, take it away from them, subdivide it and sell it off to their, the government's friends. Uh, and so they had no tenure over the land. They had no ownership over it. And so it's this very um, precarious life that they lived because they were internally displaced, but they couldn't return to their homes. Um, war had broken out again. Um, not only that, they were no longer familiar with their own f old farming techniques and other things. And so they were settled, but they didn't have land ownership, so they didn't invest. So when we're looking at aid, it has to be across a much longer time frame than just, okay, here are things that you need. Um, we actually need to facilitate property ownership. Mm. Yeah, and you liken it to, to renters being unwilling to invest in the, in the properties they live in because it's not, it's not theirs. Yeah, a very common situation across the world and that's the same situation in these IDP camps. Now, in some cases, you don't want the internally displaced people to stay in a particular place because they may not be able to sustain 
um, you know, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 people for whatever reasons, and that's fair enough. Uh, but in this situation, there was no plan to move them elsewhere, and so really it was this stalemate between the two and neither were talking, neither were working it out. I mean, these problems are so big, aren't they? I mean, without international aid, so many communities, I'm thinking at the moment, you know, we've got the Rohingya, what's happening with them in Syria, the war there, um, the the frontline aid work that you were providing and and many others are providing now is essential. But... we also need to do it better. And I wonder um, what your thoughts are at the moment because, you know, occasionally I'm thinking of the Oxfam um, scandal. Like we, we don't want these organisations getting a bad rap, but we also want them operating mm. in this squeaky clean way on the ground. Mm. Um, you know, you sort of throw your hands up, it feels too hard, but are you trying to find a way forward? Well, this book is a is a narrative, easy to read, something that people can dip into and, and get a feel for the life of, of an aid work. And so I'm, I'm trying to avoid, you know, policy prescriptions, but there are two messages that hopefully come out. One of them is that it's not um, more money that the aid industry needs, it's more time. So the expectation upon people is to get it done, fix that country. I mean, you remember in Iraq, we thought we'd pile money in and everything will be fixed and there'll be a democracy and you know, the economy will flourish. Well, of course, that didn't happen and we should have known it wouldn't happen. The second thing in response to your question is we have to get the right people out there. And and just in the time that I've been involved in the aid industry, but, but even more so talking to people who've been around for a while, there used to be this emphasis about empathising with the community that you lived in and amongst, learning their language, engaging with them. And maybe over a lifetime of a, a, a career of aid work, you would spend your time in two or three countries. But now it's about resume building. It's about it's the bureaucratisation of aid. And so when you go to university, you're taught how to write reports and balance budgets and um, grant applications. And it's all about managing up and no longer about engaging with the community. And that's part of the problem. It's too much money um, thrown at problems with too short a time frame. And on that issue of, of getting the right people involved, you are really kind of quite scathing of some aid workers you encountered, particularly in East Timor, who had, you know, atrocious attitudes towards the local population, saying that people had the IQ of dogs and that sort of thing. Um, there's also kind of a disconnect in, in other people you encounter, um, such as in Baghdad, when uh, a project officer sort of doesn't see any point in learning Arabic, sees it as unrelevant and, and unnecessary, but he's learning Latin instead. So we have this kind of very apparent disconnect from the, the image we get from your book, from the people who were there to do a job and the local communities there, there to, to help. Well, it's no longer necessary and this is part of the problem that as long as you can keep the donors happy, then that's all that's necessary and, and I, I think that's problematic. Um, it, it just it diverts our attention away from where the need actually is, which is getting to know the community, helping them help themselves. Because we have to, at the end of the day, remember that not everyone wants to replicate the Western lifestyle. Not everyone wants their country to become Australia. And really, I thought that was the case. <laughs> right. well, and if you come here, you have to be like, well, in inverted quote, quote, us, you know. Well, amazingly, though, that's how our aid programs are structured. Because we say, okay, you know, tick box here. Have you got a, a you know, a election scheduled? No. Okay, we're going to organise that. Anti-corruption commission? No, we need that. You know, and it's, it really is like a tick box approach. 
And the challenge, though, is, and, and it's so much harder, is to actually put aside your own preferences and prejudices and engage with the community and say, well, what kind of society do you want to live in? How can I help you um, reach that aspiration? Uh, and that's what makes it so difficult. But a lot of these people that you just mentioned, Dylan, are, are not um, being uh, forced or, or required to even think that through. And I wonder if it, I mean, do you see glimmers that this might change? I mean, uh, there will be a rebuilding effort, we hope sooner than later in, in Syria. And uh, uh, do you see that there might be hope that it might be done differently? Um, I mean, in Syria, so many people have incredible educations and are displaced. If, if somehow they can return and build the country the way that they mm. wish it to be rebuilt. I mean, look, I, I don't want to be one of these sort of super optimistic people, but there are great projects around the world that are working. Absolutely. Can it be done at scale? I think there's two separate points there that you make. So with, with Syria, the problem is, and no one's talking about this, is that um, the US has been pushed out of that. And with the US being pushed out, the, the, the whole Western um, aid structure won't be leading that effort. And so instead what you'll have is Turkey, Iran and Russia. So you've got an you know, illiberal um, Russia and Islamist Turkey and an ostracised Iran who will be re leading reconstruction, um, probably funded in part by China. And so that will be a completely different approach and I don't think it's going to be a better approach, quite frankly. I think it'll be an even worse approach because what we've seen in parts of Africa with Chinese government uh, funding, it's, it's more transactional with the government. So regardless if a government um, is representative of the people or is transparent or in any way um, how it um, engages with its own community, the Chinese government gives money uh, in exchange for whatever they need. So it's transactional. So I'm not um, optimistic with the situation in Syria. And, and to your other point, I don't want to be overly negative. I think um, the, the, the foundation of what we do is, is right and it's there. I think it's just been skewed because too much money in too short a time frame, the expectations are too great. Uh, we need more of that, what used to be the old Peace Corps, Australian volunteers abroad, uh, that sort of approach, um, at least at the community level to get more people engaged with the places and the people that they work in. Mm. And, and one of the, the tensions that um, I imagine you have grappled with and also um, many aid workers might is the kind of dealing with the short-termism of, of particular projects and, and knowing that you have to leave a given country or, or community at some point in time and wanting to kind of leave that in the best shape possible but knowing you won't necessarily be there for the long haul. How have you kind of dealt with that tension throughout your career? Well, initially I started like everyone else does and that was um, hop, skip and jump from country to country and, and I, I just didn't get that sense of satisfaction. And, and so um, I eventually settled on Iraq and, and that region of the Middle East and I spent, I, I can't remember, five, six years either in Iraq or Jordan and I committed to that place and that meant changing organisations. So I worked for three different organisations then I set up my own consulting business. Now that's that's what you have to do to be able to commit to a community while what 
um, is the current approach is you commit to an organisation, an employer, and then they move you around wherever the money is. Mm. And that means often, as our Western uh, attention span is so limited, um, it, one minute it's the Asian tsunami or uh, Indian Ocean tsunami, the next minute it's an earthquake in Pakistan, and with the money go the aid workers. What do you think might might shift this? How can we change this yeah. mentality? It need, we need people to read my book, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a good look. It is a good read. And I think, um, you know, having a look at the work that you were doing in, in those three countries is informative. And a lot of people have strong connections with East Timor in particular. And I think, and when I was reading that chapter, I absolutely understood what you're talking about. And, um, yeah, it's a really valuable contribution. I think to, to answer your question directly, though, um, with technological changes and increasing education along, amongst developing countries, naturally they will start pushing back where they didn't before. Um, it's just that the, the, the centre of authority and power is shifting. And so I suspect in the future there will be situations where people will just say, no, no, go away. And, and I experienced that in some places. Um, East Team was one of them. Um, but um, I suspect that will happen more and more in the future. Mm. Have you had, had a sense yet of, of how, um, you know, people in the aid sector have responded to your book for those who might have seen it so far? It's, it's being sort of formally released tomorrow. I yes. understand it'll be in big bookstores soon after then, but have people had a chance to read to it and, and respond? I, I have had a number of um, friends uh, and colleagues, work colleagues, review it and provide um, some commentary on it. So far, very positive, largely because it provides a different perspective. It's one that they've had at the back of their minds thinking, I wonder, you know, what happened to that project that I was mm. involved in? And so a lot of them are um, really happy that I did what I did. Now, as far as the, the criticisms, uh, everyone has their own perspective. Some people think it's actually important that they move around from country to country often because then they get a broad breadth of experience on a particular issue and then they can, they would argue, they can bring it to bear at a, um, a particular country's um, challenges that's faced. But um, overall, it's been just uh, because it's unique, it's been positive. Mm. Well, if you're, if you're interested, you can um, very soon pick up um, Dennis's book. Uh, it's called No Dancing, No Dancing Inside the Global Humanitarian Crisis. And, uh, um, yeah, good luck with it. Thank you very much and thank you for having and me thanks here. thanks for coming in. I'm Dr Dennis Dragovich. And two years ago, artist and author Lee Hobbs was our guest because he was named as the Children's Laureate. And now two years later, he's the outgoing Children's Laureate after travelling across the country, visiting schools and attending public events. He even went to the UK in order to advocate for children's literature and uh, he's passed the baton on to Morris Gleitzman now and now he's free. Um, his time is free and Sally Rippon, thank you for coming in and bringing Lee with you. Um, both. It's really exciting to have you here because we had you here at the beginning of your laureateship and now we get to hear a little bit about how the experience was. That's right. Is there a baton you've actually passed on to no, Morris Leitzman? It was a figure of speech. No, uh, if there is some kind of ceremonial... He's just, no, there's no... Cer I was in London when he was anointed or whatever you call it, crowned. Um, so he's the new bloke, new person. Yeah, I, I, I think people have heard of him. Yes, well, he's been well known for, I think, probably before I even started doing kids' books. So he's used to... Um, a bit of attention, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and I think most people know Lee Hobbs, the author of Old Tom and Mr Chicken and Mr Badger. Um, 
Mr Chicken's travelled quite far and wide across the world. You've written books where Mr Chicken is set in quite a few places. Mm. Um, can you tell us a few stories in your laureateship about how you connected with kids across the country with somebody like Mr Chicken? Well, the, the uh, highlight, uh, Mr Chicken-wise, um, was in fact before I was the laureate, I got a letter from a teacher... Uh, called Miss Ferguson, who said our cl- my class has been reading Mr Chicken Goes to Paris. The kids love him and we wanted, wanted if you'd answer some questions. And So there's a whole list of, you know, mad questions. You know, how old is Mr Chicken? Isla, aged five. Has Mr Chicken got a wife? You know, um, Anglais, you know, age... Anyway, how, wh- where does he live? Miss Ferguson, age 32. But <laughs> when I got to the end of the letter, it said, uh, uh, please... Keep writing these stories, you know, the kids, you blah, blah, blah. But it, it was from Ballyhome Primary School in Bangor in Northern Ireland in, near Belfast. Wow. Which I found quite affecting. And when I, as the laureate, was at the Bologna Book Fair, I had dinner with the other laureates and really connected in particular with the Irish mob. And I was telling them about this letter and uh, Siobhan Parkinson, the first Irish laureate, said, well, you ought to come to Ireland some stage. And I said, well, in fact, I'm going back to Australia, but then going to England in six weeks, I'll fly there. And she left the table. We'd all had quite a bit to drink at this stage. Left the table, came back and said, it's all organised. If you, <laughs> if you get to Belfast, we'll look after you. So as it turned out, I flew to Belfast from London, was picked up by PJ Lynch, the Irish laureate, and uh, stayed overnight uh, in Belfast and visited the school, visited Miss Ferguson's class. It, that it was fabulous because they crowned PJ and I and uh, had a whole banquet. The school was decorated as Mr Chicken, and I gave a, a big talk and uh, showed the kids how to draw Mr Chicken. It, uh, so that was good. That was a highlight. So there is a network of children's laureates around the world. And, yes. Um, oh. Yeah, as Sally adjusts your headphones. Just, Thanks for doing oh. that because it was really... <laughs> oh, right. I okay. can show you. <laughs> We've got it on. Sorry. Well, sort of. Look at that. <laughs> this is breaking the fourth wall, this isn't is it? This is such a slick presentation. <laughs> as we adjust Lee Hobbs' yeah. headphones. Can I still talk without them? For the yes. Moment? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, what's happening is that uh, we've had... This is, I was the fifth or the fourth laureate in Australia, but there's been one in England for 20 years. I mean, not the same one, they have, you know. And um, uh, so there are about eight or nine countries that have children's laureates. And in, at the Bologna Book Fair, every two years, all the laureates get together and uh, have a good time. Do you do the same job? So, you all do the same uh, job? What a good question, <laughs> Kalia. Um, what it is, is that each laureate, we're all on the same page. So we're all uh, like ambassadors for children's literature. But each laureate has particular things that they're uh, quite passionate about. Like Morris is about story. I was fed income about um, the importance of libraries and librarians in schools. And I felt very strongly as an ex-teacher that kids ought to feel the right that they can write stories or draw or create free from the pressure of ranking. Just because a kid may not be very good at art or good at writing shouldn't preclude them from sitting down and 
putting something down on the page just for the love of it. You know, being marked and assessed is something else. So that's how it works. Everyone's got a different thing. And in your conversations with the other laureates and also um, the, the schools or the school you visited in, in mm. Northern Ireland, do you notice a um, kind of a similar experience in terms of the way reading is um, encouraged or not encouraged with the uh, what you've encountered in Australia? Firstly, kids are the same more or less everywhere. You know, they're innately funny, innately up for adventure, and they've got a hunger to learn uh, and enthusiasm. That, to me, is the great joy of creating for that age group. They're up for it. The other thing is that wherever you go, there are always teachers that are absolutely dedicated in spite of terrible conditions in the sense that Everywhere, bureaucrats are changing assessment rules and libraries are disappearing and all that. In spite of all this, you know, um, you'll find fabulous dedicated people. And I can't remember what the question was. Is, is the experience, I guess, internationally in terms of the way reading's encouraged or, or celebrated or, or the need for that in Australian schools, as, as you've spoken about, is that a similar experience to what yes. laureates internationally? That, yes. That they're, they're finding they need to really focus on and encourage those things as well? Absolutely. And it was terrific because, you know, they're all, we're, t- we're all talking about, we're all artists and writers, you know, all the laureates either write or draw or do, or do, or do both. And it was terrific because... At the meal, you've got people from, you know, seven, eight, nine different countries, but very quickly everyone clicks and, you know, in between drinking and eating, we're all talking about the same things, trying to do good work and um, the challenges of uh, allowing kids to express themselves or have access to books or things. So it's the same everywhere, you know, mm. slight variations. Mm. Of, we're all into the mm. ranking, exactly. international rankings. Yeah. Oh, all that. No, no, I'm, yeah. So how is the laureate set up in Australia? Because we've had, you, I think you, we had Bury and Allison were the first laureates. Then Jackie, Jackie French. French, and you're our third laureate. Have I missed someone along yeah, the way? Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, and uh, so it, and then Morris. And Morris is our fourth one. Mm. And so it's been, and each laureate stays in the role for two years, and you're very well supported. And you have to visit. Are there certain obligations of a laureate? Yes, the obligations are that over the course of two years, you visit every state and territory at least once, and as well as that, that you visit uh, indigenous communities so that the um, indigenous kids get a chance to. Um, you know, whatever we can offer to to get a look in there. Mm. And it's supported by um, a group of people. You said it's quite tight funding, though, so Cal puts money towards... Cal and the Australia Council and different individuals um, back it in any way they can. Um, like when I was the laureate, uh, Duncan and Di Johnston, who own the Hill of Content bookshop, supported the laureate ship i think they provided some space they were terrific so people do what they can but what we really need is as sally and i was well saying we need gina reinhardt to (laughs) say give one hour of her pay which is probably 10 million bucks (laughs) you know that's what we really need yeah does it yet have the um the momentum do you think because i suppose it's relatively early days when you think about two decades elsewhere for this kind of um, ambassador for reading and and drawing um 
do you, is it going to keep going? Does it have that oh, momentum? Yeah. I think yeah. the momentum... Boom. I'll start again. I've got <laughs> jet lag. The momentum will pick up, and I think this is where having someone like Morris is ideal because Morris has got a high profile and has had a high profile for a long time. Um, I think think that bit by bit, year by year, laureate by laureate, uh, people will realise the, the worth or the value in the role. Mm-hmm. And I think down the track... Hopefully the government will back it because, after all, these are the readers and creators of the future and the uh, more happy or comfortable the kids are, the better we all are. In your time over the past year when you've travelled around two, schools... and two years. T- two years, I'm sorry. Feels like t- 10. 2016, <laughs> 2017. Um, in the past two years, as, as you've travelled around and, and visited schools and spoken to teachers, I mean, you've expressed concern about the teacher-librarian kind of role potentially disappearing mm. in schools. What kind of feedback have you had from teachers around what's needed in that space? Uh, fantastic feedback. When I came back... When I was in uh, Bologna, <coughs> pardon me, and I, I was in... Wales for the High on Wife Festival, the English laureate, or the then English laureate, Chris Riddell said, Lee, when you get back to Australia, use, what's it called? Public media? Not public media. What's Social it called? media. Oh, yeah. mm. oh, I'm so high tech. <laughs> social media. <clears throat> I still talk about the wireless. Uh, social media to, you know, put your case. Anyway, on Facebook, my Facebook page really is to do with work. I just said how uh, concerned I was about the disappearance of art and music and libraries and librarians from schools. And if anyone's got personal stories, send them in so that, say in an interview, I'm not talking theory, I'm talking fact. Anyway, I got, uh, that was shared, I don't know, that was shared, I don't know, 15,000, shared 15,000 times. I don't know how many thousands of people around the world all sent in things. I mean, I couldn't even read most Mm. of them. But um, so... Uh, I think it struck a chord. This is another beautiful thing about there being a laureate. It's a sort of a, an anchor point or a lighthouse where people, say, for instance, the librarians, they thought, ah, we're not alone. So that I was like this connecting point. So I'd go to conferences and they'd all be seem thrilled because I'd stand up and, you know, people can tell if you're fair income and say, look, this really is a big concern. Um, and... Librarians, because you see, by law, teachers, I don't think they're allowed to write a letter to the paper. If you're put out, if you're in New South Wales, if you're a teacher or a teacher librarian and you lose your job, you can't write to the age or the Sydney Morning Herald and say that. So I was able to say all this, you know, on Virginia Trioli's show, um, free from being sacked. And it was great. Virginia was terrific. They, she put a little bit, a cut out, uh, what do you call it, an excerpt from our interview about that. And now that got looked at 66,000 times. Mm. So I thought, gee, that... There uh, is power. Social, yes, mm. absolutely. That's, that's social, social media. media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know we said public that's a, media that's a, that's a great initiative, oh, that one. God, what an old <laughs> dag I am. Um, Lee, I wonder about your own practice in this <clears> time. Have you kind of put on Mr Chicken on the shelf for a couple of years <laughs> and now you're about to, to pull those ideas down? Um, or how did that work? Well... Kalia, I, I'm the, I'm, I've been thinking about the next Mr Chicken book for a couple of years. So what I did is just fill a sketchbook with ideas. I wasn't able to sit down and do a sustained project. I did lots of little things in between. Um, so it's quite a commitment then to have that public 
role. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. And and even though there were only 34 interstate and overseas trips in those two years, in between that I had my usual commitments to earn a living. Yeah. 156,000 kilometres, apparently, yeah, Mike Shuttleworth. Yeah, he calculated so, that. Yes, that you travelled yes, here it, and it interstate f- as the laureate. It feels like I've done it today. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it was all good. <laughs> so one of the things that you brought to the laureateship that I suppose each laureate will bring something different is, mm. is drawing as well. And I was lucky to be able to interview you a couple of times at the Writers' Festival and watch the kids um, draw Mr Chicken or some of the other characters you bring to these forums this is something that you can take across the world and mm. into all kind of cultural backgrounds because mr chicken um could be every man i mean he's not even really a chicken he's just a a, a roast that's chicken, right an uncooked chicken. well as <laughs> I, I, I didn't you say you had alice pun here recently yeah she because did alice here. alice was a few years ago at a, a session that i did i don't know some festival i think in queensland and I, I think I was introducing Mr Chicken. I remember she said, but that doesn't look like a chicken. It looks like some kind of carcass. And Alice couldn't believe that I'd created a children's book character out of a carcass. Anyway, that's. I think Alice has had um, counselling since then. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, what was the question? Well, kids find him hilarious because, because he is really such a cranky character. Well, I never say he's a chicken. I no. say his name's Mr Chicken. This is what he looks like. Kids... If you engage kids, they'll go anywhere with you in a story, you know. They just because that's what I mean. They're up for fun, and that's what I found touching in Ireland and Wales. You know, sometimes I'd be standing in there to be all this audience of adults too, and I'd think, "Gee, I'm actually drawing on a whiteboard, and here I am in Wales." Mm. Or, and I found that quite affecting. Mm. Mm-hmm. I thought, "Well, I'm very lucky to be able to." to do this. We were lucky to have you as our ambassador. Thank you very much. (laughs) And I mean, you have spoken also about art and not just, um, you know, librarians and Mm. and teacher librarians in their role, but the role of art, particularly in schools. And it's interesting, you know, the schools I'm familiar with, um, art teachers are are struggling to get even 40 minutes a week with each kid in the school. That's an outrage. And I just think that's that's a crowded curriculum, isn't it? Mm. And that's um, difficult to even get paint out and then pack it up again in well, that time with 30, 25 kids. But, I mean, did you also get a similar response from from people when you speak about the, the art education that yes. we're not providing in primary schools? Yes. Look, it's an outrage. Um, I was an art teacher for 25 years at secondary level. You know, I did most of the Mr Chicken books hiding in university high school library from my head of department on my spare period. But um, the thing is... Art's terribly important for a number of reasons, and especially in Australia, I think. Firstly, I think um, you can't underestimate the importance of beauty. And I think uh, a sense of aesthetics, even it's the colour of your front door or the difference light makes in a room, um, is really important. People may not be able to articulate it, but I used to take kids at uni high and we'd go into this hideous new set, or it wasn't new, but 70s wing at University High School, some horrible, ugly, orange carpet and fluorescent lit, low-ceilinged music wing and say, how do you feel here, kids? And they'd say, oh, all right. Then we'd go across to Ormond College at, uni- at Melbourne Uni and I'd say, all right, into the beautiful Victorian. How do you feel here? And they'd say, great. And I'd say, why? Well, height, 
lovely windows, it's pretty, blah, blah. Then we'd go back to the ugly room and I'd say, how do you feel here? Hideous. They were able to articulate it. And I think if you teach kids art in school or allow them to do it and don't say... You don't necessarily have to be fabulous. We're not saying you're all artists. But what it does is it not only gives the kids a, a, a means by which they can express themselves and relax, but kids also, in being aware of art, can be more responsible in the general environment. And I think you'd have to be a bit of a clod to not see how ugly parts of Melbourne have become, you know. (laughs) Well, they have, you know. Third-rate, crummy buildings and mess everywhere. And no-one feels better with that. Kids feel, you know, we all feel better if there are trees and attractive buildings and, you know... I don't want to sound like a Baptist minister, so I'll stop there. <laughs> what, but I think it is important. What's your studio like? What's your kind of ideal creative environment to be in when you're creating your, your books and illustrations? Well, Dylan, in fact, I've, I sit in a chair with a drawing board on my lap that I've had since I was about five and now I'm nearly 65. So I've, I just sit where, really wherever I am and I've got that drawing board on my lap, I'm, I'm focused on that. But apart from that, my studio is terribly messy, you know, with paper everywhere. But I couldn't... I don't know. I know that I could work in a hideously ugly room. But But I've seen it. It's mm. light. You've got a garden around. Mm, They're two blue healer dogs. Aesthetic is important to you. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, not in a prissy way. Mm. Um, I say defensively. (laughs) 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 Doesn't look like the... uh, Doesn't look like Versailles. (laughs) But you know what I mean by aesthetics. It's... it's, uh, you know, sport may well be mm. important. It's important for kids to get fresh air. But I think a sense of beauty, um, you know, and is a, a respect. Good thing. And well, you Absolutely. said responsibility towards, but I guess it's it's, it's responding to yeah. nature as well. Yeah. Well, mm. that's great. And so, what now? So you will have a bit more time for yourself now. I'm imagining because it's been it's two very very intense years, and yeah. you've been out there and travelling a lot, and and really. You know, doing an incredible a, job as an ambassador. Do you can you go back to your studio now for a little bit and work? I can. Mm. Or I was in a different uh, state or different state anyway for each week for two years. A mental state. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh touche. <laughs> no, well, I'm always in that state. Um, yeah. No, I can focus probably a, a little bit. Uh, and I've got this new project, Mr. Chicken, um, all over Australia. Mm. He's coming to Australia next. So how um, many countries are Paris, Rome. Paris, London, Rome, mm. Australia. Yeah. yeah. Look where a carcass can go. That's <laughs> a, a, absolutely right, Kelly. <laughs> Thank you for coming in. And we really are bookending your couple of years as our um, children's laureate. Thank you um, for doing that work. It's awesome. And it um, for coming in and sharing it with us and also kicking off with us at the beginning of 2016. I can't believe it's been two years has gone like that for me anyway. Yeah. Like <laughs> me too. <laughs> and Sally, we'll catch you again in another yes. month. And uh, Sally will be back um, bringing someone else of her faves um, with her. And um, and she's going to head off and work on her um, new books, Polly and Buster. And, of course, Billy B. Brown is her long-standing series and Hey Jack. And um, we'll see you again next month. It's been Thanks, great Lee. to see you. Thank Thanks. you. And Lee Hobbs. Um, now exiting the building. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.